There is a deep sense of unease in our rapidly changing world. We all know something has been lost, but we don't know why or where it all leads. Popular culture tells us it is all about me and that we should worship our creations rather than the creator. In politics, the end justifies the means. In relationships, love means self-satisfaction. In life, status and appearance are what count. In the church, confusion replaces clarity and conviction. Our faulty and distorted view of God is at the root of all our problems within and without. But what if we viewed God differently? What if we saw him the way he longed for us to see him? Instead of worshiping a comfortable golden calf of our own creation, we can worship a God that is holy, wise, and just. One whose faithfulness and goodness are matched by his power and sovereignty over all things. This is a God that can deliver us from evil and transform lives. This is a God worth worshiping. The way back, the path of hope, starts with knowing God for who he really is. We need to know the real God. So we're here now. We, we are finally here. We've been waiting for a long time. Uh, we've been talking about this series forever. Excuse me while I hit this button here. There you go. That makes it work. And um, we've been getting ready for this. Um, I think what we're about to do may be And I know how this sounds, okay? But I think what we're about to do may be the most important thing that we've ever done together. I think it's that important. Um, that's why we've been working on this for such a long time. That's why we've been treating this with such importance, because what we're about to do is, I think, the most important thing that we can do. Uh, it was back in April uh, that some of your elders and ministry team leaders and uh, staff at the church went to a Right Now conference, and, um, and, and we heard Chip Ingram talk about that, what you just heard, the real God. And uh, so it was just a, it was one of our keynote sessions for the first day we were there, it just talked about how critically important it is for leaders in the church to see God well as we minister. And, you know, we were talking about it that night, and, and uh, Vince and Malia, and I think by design, ended up in the same car on the way back. And um, you know, we were talking about, boy, how, how true, we were kind of sharing stories about how that's true in our personal lives. Um, and then we got here and we started talking with, with some of the elders about here's what we learned and here's what it was and, and, and here's what we, we, we thought about while we were there. And it kind of came full circle that, you know what, that's not just true for us, but that that's critical for every individual that's alive to figure out how they see God. And so as we, as we talked and prayed and, and we decided that this needed to be a series that we addressed, and then we said, hey, this needs to be something we invite the community to come and join us in as well, because this is, I think, the most important, critical thing that we'll figure out. And so in this I Am series, we're going to spend the next uh, 10 weeks, uh, 10 weeks, right? We're going to figure out who God is in 10 weeks. Um, that's silly in case you're not sure why everybody's chuckling, because we can't figure out who God is in 10 weeks. But you know what? We're going to explore a lot, and we're going to tackle some cultural myths about God and about faith as we do this. And so here's how I want us to start. I want you to close your eyes, like you're getting ready to pray. Bow your head, 
close your eyes, put your hands together if, if that does it for you, whatever it is. And I want you to imagine that you're getting ready to go to prayer. And I want to ask you, as you get ready to go to prayer, what's God like? Who do you picture? Is he cold and distant? Is he irritable? Is he warm and approachable? Is he friendly? Is he a lot like your parents? You know, you know they, they have a heart for you, but it, whatever you do, it, it seems like you just can never really measure up. Is he benign? Like a kindly old grandfather with a long gray beard who winks and looks the other way when you do something you're not supposed to? Is he a passionate crusader of some political cause that then you feel compelled to get behind? Is he this great big ball of energy that um, you need to get aligned with him so that the energy will flow through you? Is, is he kind and welcoming? Is he impersonal? Uh, does he smile at the prospect of getting to spend time with you? Is he for you? Is he so holy maybe that you feel like you can't even approach him without shame? And you know, that, that, that's the key. You can open your eyes and, and look up. Boy, you guys are good at following directions. I have expected you all to be looking at me anyway. Um, but that's the key. What we think about God is important. In fact, uh, A.W. Tozer says it this way, um, and this is, this is what we need to wrestle with here. This is one of the reasons why this series has kind of started to drive us. A.W. Tozer, of course, theologian, author. Uh, this comes from a book uh, called Knowledge of the Holy. Uh, nice little read. Uh, if you ever get the chance, I would suggest that you devour it. Okay? But here's what he says in that book. He says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And some of you, you're saying, well, no, 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 no. That is, that is way overstated. Uh, there are a lot of other important things about me. And one of the reasons that is, is because we live in a culture that says this, what you believe about God is personal and it doesn't really impact your everyday life. See, we live in a culture that, that has drilled down on us so many times, so frequently that your faith is personal, that your faith is about you, just you. It has no business being outside of you. It has no business being in the public square. And even more than that, we've been taught to believe that it doesn't really impact everyday life. That it's just something you have, and that's enough. But, but the reality is we know that that's not true. Because if you think wrongly about God, it, uh, it jacks with everything. It messes with your entire life. See, and so it starts with this. It, it starts with what your parents taught you. Okay? Our, our ideas about God, they, they come from a lot of places. It's a hodgepodge of things. And, and it starts with what your parents taught you. And uh, this is so true. It's like, you know what? I am, I am a rabid, you know me, I'm a rabid Cubs fan. Anybody know what's happened with the Cubs Cardinals this weekend? I'm confused. I, I, I haven't watched. <laughs> Wait, that's not true. I've watched. Cubs are winning. Um, just let's not talk about the Brewer series that happened before that. But here's the thing. Like, I am a Cubs fan. You know why I'm a Cubs fan? Because my dad was a rabid Cubs fan. 
That's the way that it works, right? Most of you, when you choose things, you choose them for a reason. Uh, And our view of God starts with usually how our parents viewed God. And some of us, and I I pray this is never the case for our kids. Um, I pray this about my, my three kids all the time, and, and hopefully you pray this for your kids too if you've, if you've got younger ones still. Uh, but sometimes what happens is our view of God causes our kids to say, well, I, I want nothing to do with that, especially if we haven't lived it well. And they go to the completely other end, and they say, I'm going to reject everything about God because of what my parents thought. Or sometimes it pulls them in, but our parents, that starts it. And, you know, and, and, and then it's our favorite teachers. And it's those TV shows and movies that we think are innocent enough, but that always have this agenda that's just under the surface that's meant to teach us a new worldview. The books we read, your favorite professors at college, you know, some of that that stuff on YouTube that we like to listen to. And all of a sudden, we start to get off about God. And let me tell you, there's nobody that's got God figured out. We will never see God rightly this side of glory. It just won't happen, okay? But God is, to a degree, knowable. And, and that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out how God is knowable because if you're off about God one little bit, this is why we say it's the most important thing without, uh, about you. If you're off about God one little bit, it messes with everything. The way you view life, the way you view death, the way you view marriage, the reason for life, how to live it, what success looks like, what value looks like. When my view about God is off, all of those things change. It messes with things. Okay, and so we are going to spend this series and we're going to try to figure out two things. One is how God sees us and what's true about him. Let me give you two quick examples that come from my time as a counselor before we get into the text. The two quick examples are this. Um, My time as a counselor, even now as I do counseling in the church, one of the things that that, uh, we often get to is uh, when people sit down with me, that who is God? And just recently I had had a gal in my office, um, and she wanted to know um, if there was hope for her. Now, she wasn't really looking uh, for life change, Okay, uh, but, but she wanted to know, is there hope for me? And, and one of the things that she kept saying is that it doesn't matter what I do, God seems to not respond. Okay, it's never enough. And so she, what she had is she had this view of God as a cop or a drill sergeant. You know, that, that God could be pleased, but only if the, the performance was exemplary. That when the performance was exemplary, then God would be pleased. And until the performance was exemplary, God could not possibly be pleased. And so it came down to, well, how much do I have to read my Bible before God is pleased? Is it five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour a day? How much is enough so that God will finally say, I'm good with you? How much prayer is necessary? Is it the Lord's prayer? Can I just, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, kingdom come, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, now I'm good, or, or do I need to spend a half hour in prayer? How much money? 10%? 20? Like, what's the threshold where finally God says, okay, you're in good shape? And then I see people in my office that are on the other end of the spectrum. They view God as that kindly grandfather. Oh, boys will be boys. 
you know, he sees your sin, but he says, oh, it's not as bad as the neighbor, so it's okay. Or, yeah, yeah, he, he knows your sin. He knows that you're, you're contradicting what the Bible says, but, but he thinks, oh, that was written in a different culture a long time ago, so nod and wink. It'll be our secret. But when our view of God is wrong, nothing works right. Everything's off. We need to see God for who he really is, and we need, we need to know how he feels about us. And that's what we're going to be exploring here a little bit. But for those of you who, uh, what I found is that more often than not, the way that most people, um, especially if you're my age or older, the way that most people view God is in that militaristic, that drill sergeant cop kind of role. And so let me just say this as we go. Oh, that's the one I want right there. Great breakthroughs, um, they don't come from being more religious. Great breakthroughs in faith come from understanding who God is and what he thinks about you. Reading your Bible more is great, and we're going to see that that's one of the ways God reveals himself. But great breakthroughs in faith don't come from trying harder. They never will. Great breakthroughs in faith come from a relationship with the God of the universe, seeking him with your whole heart. And so as we go through this today, I, I think that you're going to see that clearly. So there are three ways, three ways that we see God clearly. If we, if we can track these three truths down, I guess not ways, three truths that will help us see God with 20-20 vision. Um, and these are things that, uh, that we've kind of come to believe, things that we need to know, things that we need to navigate so that we can do this effectively. Uh, the first truth is simply that God is not like us. And one of the first keys to seeing God with 2020 vision is understanding that God is not like us. All religions do this. All religions uh, assume that God is a bigger, better version of who we are. We like to have a handle on God, and we take what we know. It's not our fault. We're, we're, we're hardwired to know what we can experience. What we experience are bad people and good people in our lives. And so what we like to do is we like to take the best qualities of the best people that we know, and we say, God is now like this. And if I think about that in my life, you know, I got a guy like, uh, I mean, I could name lots of guys, but, but, you know, I got a guy like Dave Bloomquist. Used to serve with Dave. Dave. Dave was kind of a mentor of mine as I was becoming an elder. And Jerry, who was my, my, my pastor for a long time, and, and my grandpa Hans. That's the guy that would out loud in the middle of the day when my brother and cousins and I would be hanging out at grandma's house, that I would hear him from his bedroom praying for each one of us by name. You know, and so I think, okay, well, who is God? What's God like? Well, he's like Dave, and he's like Jerry, and he's like Grandpa, and he's the best of them, because none of them were perfect, but he's the best of them. He's got all their best qualities and character. That's what we do, but God's not like that. Look at what it says in, in Isaiah 40. To who will you compare me? Who is my equal? Ask the Holy One. Look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? Who brings them out like an army, each one after another, calling each by its name? Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure 
the depths of his understanding. And so we read this text and we read in that God says, I am like nothing you've ever heard of. I am like no one you've ever seen. I am not the best qualities of the best people that you know. I am something altogether different than all of that. Think of it like this. If there were two categories, okay, everything that's ever been created and then everything that was never created, you would have God in this, everything that was never created, and everything else would be over here. God says, I am unlike anything you have ever seen. No one can measure the depths of my understanding. That's what it is. See, God is wholly unlike anything that we've ever seen. He is not a bigger, better version of you. See, and that's really what it comes down to. One of the ways that we distort our view of God is that we say that God is a bigger, better version of us. He is all of my best qualities, and he is none of my worst qualities, and he is a bigger, better, more powerful version of me, except here's where this goes wrong. Here's why this doesn't work. What happens when cancer. What happens when my kid gets sick? What happens when my spouse walks out? What happens when I lose my job and I'm in danger of losing my house? What's one of the first things that people tell me in all of those scenarios, in all of those situations? How could God let that happen? It's not fair. Because what we assume is we, here, the kids rocking out downstairs. They're doing their thing. Um, what you can assume, right, is we assume God is a bigger, better version of me. And if I was all-powerful, I wouldn't make this decision. I wouldn't let this happen. And because God should be a bigger, better version of me, then none of this stuff should ever happen, and everything falls apart. And so there are so many Christians that are disillusioned because they see God wrongly. They assume that God is a bigger version of them. And, and we've got to break that cycle. The second thing that helps us see God with 2020 vision is understanding what we do to him. What we tend to do to God is to reduce him to our most manageable terms. Right? And again, all religions of the world are guilty of this because what we like to do is we like to take God and we like to boil him down into our most manageable terms. A God we can control, a God we can manage, a God we can manipulate. That's what we do. We want him to be somebody that we can get our hands around. And so we create systems and we create um, idols and we create cause and effect and we do all of these things that aren't biblical. Why? Because we want to be able to manage God. But again, this is wrong. Look at Romans 1. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him. They began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. So instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and animals. It continues, verse 25 of that text really sums it up. It says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things instead of God. One of the ways that we see God wrongly is that we try to reduce him into terms that are manageable. You know what? We see this so clearly in scripture. I'll give you a perfect example. Exodus 32. Uh, if you know your Old Testament well, 
okay? Then you'll know this one. If you don't, track along. It's okay. You, you'll, you'll, you'll understand very clearly what I'm talking about. But in Exodus 32, um, it, it's, it's this scenario where the Israelites, who have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, God has brought 10 disastrous plagues on the people of Egypt because they wouldn't let the Israelites go. Uh, you know this uh, best if you've seen the Charlton Heston video, Ten Commandments, right? That's, that's how you know that story. If, if, if you don't know your Old Testament, but you love TV like I do, you've seen the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. There's a new one. It's not awesome. Don't worry about it, okay? But here's what happens with all due respect to Christian Bale. Anyway, he's no Charlton Heston, <laughs> I guess. Although I'm having a hard time seeing Charlton Heston as Batman. I'm officially off track. So there's plagues, there's 10 of them, and, and finally Pharaoh says, go, the people go, they leave, Pharaoh changes his mind, his heart is hardened, uh, great theological discussion to be had some other time that God hardened his heart, Pharaoh chases after uh, with his army, the Israelites, they get to the Red Sea. The people freak out. God says, I got this. He parts the Red Sea. They walk through on dry land as Pharaoh's armies and their chariots try to chase the Israelites. God lets the water go. And in what's become a weird children's story, everybody drowns that's not an Israelite passing through safely. <laughs> Tell me how that's a children's story. And we got Noah's Ark on the walls in the nursery, so that's good too. But God does these miraculous things and the people see it. And they worship him. Yahweh, I am. And God says, you know what? Here's the deal. I am the only God that there is. In fact, the plagues that he gave to Egypt, if you really look at those, you know what those plagues did? Each one of those plagues that God brought on Egypt attacked one of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Each one attacked a god that the Egyptians worshipped. And that's God's way of saying, I am the only god that there is. And he tells his people, through Moses, this is the Lord your God. Worship no one else. Have no more idols. That's it. Only God. And they get to the mountain. And Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. And we get to Exodus 32. And he's been there a month. And he's up there. And he's having this face-to-face -face with God. And God is giving him the Ten Commandments and the law for the people for Israel. And he's giving him this. And while Moses is up here doing this, the people are down here freaking out. Like, yeah, I know it was only 30 days ago that there were 10 plagues and that God miraculously brought us out of Egypt. And I know that it wasn't that long ago that, that God had to part the Red Sea. I mean, he parted the Red Sea so we could walk through on dry land and then brought it down to crush our enemies. No, it wasn't that long ago, but man, it's been 30 days. 30 days is a long time. And so they go to Aaron, Moses' brother, the high priest, and they say, Aaron, we don't, we don't know what happened to this guy, Moses. Here's what you need to do. Make us a god. We don't know about that other god. He may have abandoned us. Make us a god. And Aaron knows better. Aaron knows better. So here's what he says. He said, bring me one gold hoop earring from every family among the plunder. And they bring it to him, and he takes it, and he melts it down, and he casts it into this golden calf. And he puts it in front of them. And here's what he says. Get this. This, pointing to the calf, this is Yahweh. See, so he didn't say, you know what, let's serve a golden calf instead of Yahweh. What he did is he took a golden calf and he said, now this is your avenue 
to experience all of the blessings that Yahweh has for you. And they fell down and they worshipped it. And then the Bible says they engaged in revelry, which is code for something that's not PG-13. Isn't it funny how we do that, though? Whenever we, we try to add to religion or whenever we try to change Christianity in some way, you know what we're doing. Nobody ever adds something to make it harder. Right? You never see somebody add something to their faith to make it harder. They're always adding things to do what they really want to do. And in this case, it was to have drunken orgies. But that's what happened. They exchanged what they knew about God, and they chased after something different. Now, there's just a, a word of caution there for us. It's a dangerous thing to add things even in the name of God, to God. You don't get to say things that God never says. It's one of the reasons, it's one of the reasons that we struggle sometimes with, with things that other um, Christological Christian churches might teach. Because if you ever have to say to somebody, okay, well, I, I get that. Show me that in here. And they can't show you that in here but they can pull out some, well, here's another ancient text that we can look at, or here's something that, that somebody else said, or here's something from the second century that's really important. I'm like, yeah, 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 I get that. Okay? They're like, oh, well, they were really close, though, to the original. So if they were really close to the original, we can trust them. 30 days! 30 days! I mean, I don't know if it gets much closer to the original than that. And they're making this golden calf and saying, this is Yahweh. But we do this. We, we reduce God to our most manageable terms. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't think any of us are going to go home and worship our golden calf. But we got idols. Two of them that bite um, evangelical Christians most frequently. The idol of self-fulfillment and the idol of happiness. One of the things that happens with this self-fulfillment and happiness is we assume, because God's a bigger, better version of us and we've reduced him to manageable terms, we assume that God's primary function ought to be to make us happy. And we design our lives around that. Upward mobility. You know, many of us are more invested in our kids. Like, I, I, I have to check my spirit in this sometimes. Okay, but many of us are more invested in our kids' success than our kids are invested in their, our kids' success. Right? Because that means something right? And, and vacations. And how many of you are so, like, like, if you're my age, I know way too many people my age. Now, listen, I'm going to say this. I should be more worried about my retirement, okay? So I'm not saying it's bad to worry about your retirement. I need to do better at that. But some of us are so worried about our retirement that every decision we make is designed so that we're going to get to this point where we're 55 and we can retire early and we can live the good life. Because we assume that God's designed for us. And by the way, if you're going to retire at 55, good for you. But not for your glory, not for your good life. But for something bigger than you. See, because what we've done is we've taken this idea that what we're supposed to be about is this relationship with Jesus. And all of our joy comes from this relationship with Jesus. Instead, we say that because of Jesus, I should have all of this self-fulfillment and happiness. And, and again... What's that mean? It means I've got disillusioned Christians. You know, we, we rail against the prosperity gospel here in this country, 
It is ruining believers in third world countries. It is turning them away from Jesus in droves in third world countries. Why? Because it's a lie. Because, it, because Jesus was never designed to give you happiness and self-fulfillment. It was never supposed to be about that. The other one here is this becoming all too frequent, this what we would call the salad bar religion. It's like when you go to the salad bar, right? You know what Carrie loves at the salad bar? And I still love her. Pickled beets. Now, I am a firm believer that there is one thing that should be pickled. Pickles. I have never just stumbled upon something, and you know what would make this awesome? Let's soak it in vinegar for a really long time. That's how you pickle stuff, right? Okay, good. Because otherwise, that just makes no... But, but she... I avoid the pickled beets. Carrie piles them on her plate, which, by the way, means when she's done, it looks like a massacre happened on her plate. <laughs> Whatever, right? We can do that with the salad bar. It doesn't work with religion. But yet that's what we do all the time, right? We're like, well, I'll take this part because I like it. I'll leave out this part. Um, and by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a new um, religious affiliation that, that happens now in our culture in the latest research uh, from Barna Group and from uh, Lifeway, and it's called nuns, N-O-N-E's, people that claim spirituality with no organized religion. You know, people have always said, oh, I'm spiritual, but now, now we start to claim it. 20% of the population, just about, claims to be none. Higher with millennials. Spiritual, no religion. Because what we like to do is we like to take the best, what we think is the best, and we reject everything else. In the church today, we do this, I mean, we do this in so many different ways. One of the easiest examples is um, sexuality, uh, what God says about holiness in in marriage, and, and I'm not talking about homosexuality here as much as I'm just talking in general. Uh, we do it with things like um, gender. We do it with things like generosity. We do it with things like forgiveness. We do it with things like contrition. We do it with all kinds of things. We take, in scripture, we take the parts about God that we like, and then we reject the other parts. And you know what we do in that? Listen, you've just made yourself God. We're going to talk more about these things in weeks to come, but when you do that, you're setting yourself up to be God. Here's how that works. What you're saying is the God of the universe can't know this, right? I mean, if either truth is relative or there's truth. And when I say, well, I like truth, I, I know about God, so I understand that there's real truth, but I think this is right. I think this is wrong. I know what the Bible says, but I don't think it fits. But this I really like, so I'll pull this in there. Hell, yeah, no, I hate hell. Hell can't be a good idea. Uh, God couldn't have meant hell, so hell, that's gone. But, but everybody gets in, and we'll do it this way. And so what I've done is I've decided that I'm the one that gets to know absolute truth. Not God. Not the elders of the church. Me. Not the pastor. Not what is in the Bible. But I, I decide what's absolute truth. I decide what's good enough to be in, and I decide what's worthless enough to cast out. And when you have this salad bar mentality, you've made yourself God. That's what happens when we reduce him, okay? Last thing, the way that we see God in 2020 vision is we understand this truth. 
God can only be known as he reveals himself to us. God can only be known as he chooses to reveal himself. There's no secret knowledge of God. There's no summoning the knowledge of God. God is known as he reveals himself to us. Look here at Psalm 119. Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. The Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. It's a good thing to search for the Lord with all your heart. It is a good thing to exhaust yourself in searching for the Lord. Why? Because he's not like us. It's a good thing to search for the Lord. Why? Because it's a dangerous game to reduce him into manageable terms. And it's a good thing to search for God with all your heart. Why? Because we can only know him as he reveals himself. So as we search for God with all our heart and he chooses to reveal himself to us, then we grow in our knowledge of the holy. That was A.W. Tozer's whole point. And there are three ways, only three ways. I'm going to say this again, and we can talk about this later. Please talk to me about this. If you've got a concern about what I'm about to say, let's sit down and let's have a conversation. What I'm going to tell you is there are only three ways that God has chosen to reveal himself. Only three. First one is through nature. Romans 1.20 says this, Through everything God made, they, meaning people, can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. And we actually talk a little bit about creation next week. So if that's a topic that's interesting to you, we're really going to drill down on that next week when we talk about how God is preexistent. That means he's the only uncreated being ever. Okay? But we're going to talk more about that. But here's what he says here is that God has revealed himself through nature. Through everything he made, which, by the way, we got a category over here of uncreated things that's God, and the category over here, which is everything else, sun, stars, moons, galaxies, people, plants, 600 types of beetles, 600 types of beetles. That's, I mean, I don't want to argue with God. Like, I mean, it's God. I'm not going to argue with God, but that's a lot of beetles. Necessary? Sure, God knows what he's doing. It's just a lot of beetles, okay? But look through, look through a telescope, and what you see is the majesty of what God created. Look through a microscope. And you know what you see when you look through the microscope? Intricate design. DNA. Something specifically coded for life. See, some of us think, well, we believe in creation. We believe in creation because that's what we weak-minded people do. No, 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 no. Listen, I believe in the creation of a divine creator that God has revealed himself through nature because there is no other plausible explanation. And you don't have to take my word for it. Do the research. What's more plausible? that God spoke 
everything into existence. Or that life started on its own with some kind of rare thing that even evolutionary biologists will tell us is akin. You can read this in, in the case for, uh, case for Faith book that's out at the desk. If you're visiting with us, grab one of those on your way out. Or, th or that, that something akin to a hurricane or a tornado racing through a junkyard. This is the math that they give you, that they tell you, look, if, if you understand evolutionary biology and life just starting on its own and the complexity of DNA falling into place, that, that the hurricane or the tornado whooshes through the junkyard and creates a fully functioning Boeing 747. That's the mathematical odds that they're giving you. And Romans 1.20 says it clearly. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities. God has revealed himself to us through his creation. Two, through his word. John 1.1, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was God and the word, I'm sorry, the word was with God and the word was God. God has revealed himself through nature. And so as we continue to live here, as we continue to do this, as we continue to see these things, one of the things that we understand is that God has revealed himself through not just the world we live in, but through this very word that we have. The word created the world we live in, and now the word resides here. Paul tells us in Timothy that this is God-breathed, that it's living and active. God has revealed himself through this. This is the pathway. This is how we know God. And then we get to the third way that we know God, the final way here. The most excellent way, the most glorious way that we know God is through his son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets uh, in many different ways, in many different times. God spoke to his people through the prophets, but... So the author of Hebrews saying, but in the last days, these days, God has spoken to us by his son. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That word there for representation, exact representation, that's the word for icon. That, that Jesus Christ is the exact image, the exact icon of the God of the universe. Think of it this way. Who bakes cookies? Raise your hand if you use cookie cutters that have intricate patterns on them, and then you, you go ahead and you um, decorate the cookies with the picture of the face. I just want to know who I can expect cookies from. <laughs> hands high. When I was a kid, uh, we used to have cookie day every day at Grandma's house. Go to Grandma Buchanan's house, we'd have cookie day. All the aunts and uncles and all the cousins and everybody would come together and everybody would bake different kinds of cookies. And then when you were done, you'd exchange cookies and then everybody would take home all of the trays that you gave out for Christmas goodies. Except there were always the rollout cookies that you'd press and then you'd bake and then you'd get to decorate. And there was always the Santa Claus competition because there was this one cookie cutter that would have this big face of Santa Claus with such detail You'd press it down in the dough, and you'd pull it out, and then you'd have this, what was, what was just a second ago on this cookie cutter is now exactly represented on this cookie that I'm about to bake and decorate. I'm hungry. 
skip breakfast is what it is. But, but the idea here, the idea here is that when we say exact representation, that's what we're thinking of, is that Jesus is the way that God reveals himself most fully to man. You want to know what God is like? You take a look at Jesus. Yeah, through nature, yes, through his word, but most gloriously, God has revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ. You know, it was getting to be towards the end of his ministry on earth when he, when he was just about to go to the cross and he had accomplished what was necessary and he was ready to turn the reins over to his disciples and he's telling them, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you. And, and Thomas, you know, you get the sense that he's a little nervous because he, he, he doesn't know what's happening exactly and he can't fully comprehend it. And he says, but, but Lord, we don't know where you're going. We don't know where you're going. And Jesus says, look, look, Thomas, I'm, I am the way. You don't know where I'm going. You know how to get there. He says, we don't know how to get there. We don't know what. Yeah, you do. I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody gets to the Father unless they get through me. And then Philip says, you know what? If you would just show us the Father, just show us God just once, then we'd get it. And Jesus says so clearly, he says, if I've been with you all this time, and you still don't know. And then he says this most profound statement. That this is the most excellent way that God reveals himself. Here's what he says. He says, from now on, if you know me, you know the Father. If you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. You want to know what God is like? You want to know how God sees you? We got all the information that we need. You're broken and messy and you're stuck in sin. He sees you like Jesus sees the woman caught in adultery when they drag her out and they demand that she be judged. You're stuck in sin. That's how Jesus sees you. Sees you as he sees that woman who he freely offers redemption and forgiveness to. You got no interest in what Jesus has to say, and you're only worried about promoting and serving yourself, and, and, and you're indifferent, and you're trying to figure out what Jesus thinks of you there. Well, here's the deal. Jesus views you then. God views you as Jesus views the Pharisees. He says, woe to you. It's not good enough to go through the motions. You actively desire to know God you want to grow in your relationship with God and you want to plug into him and you want, to, you want to follow him, then Jesus sees you like he saw the disciples. And he wants to pour into you. See, this is, how does God see me and why does it matter? Because it changes everything when you think rightly about the God of the universe and how he sees you. And you cannot put him in a box and you cannot reduce him to manageable terms. And you can only know him as he's revealed himself through the world we live in, through his word that we have in front of us that is God-breathed, and through his son, Jesus Christ, who calls you to himself. That's how you know God. If you're here this morning and you think you and God are tight and you don't know him through his son, Jesus Christ, then listen to me with all due respect. You don't know him because that's how he reveals himself to you. And that's how he sees you. That's the 
praise team to come back up. We're going to prepare to uh, collect our offering and close our service. But, but that's how he sees you. Jesus says to his disciples, you know, he says in a sermon as he, as he sits there on the mount, he says, look, come to me, all who are weary, heavy laden. You got stress? Don't worry. I will give you rest. And he's calling. And he's calling. And this is his desire for you. Why does it matter? It matters because Jesus changes everything. It matters because when you think rightly about the God of the universe, it can't not change your perspective. And so as we go from here today, I want to show you this. I want you to, to work hard this series to erase thoughts that he's a bigger, better version of you. Cut your preferences out of his assumed character, right? That's the, he's not manageable like that. You can't decide that he has something that he needs to be passionate about because you are. It doesn't work that way. And search with your whole heart. You know what I love? This, this passage in Jeremiah 29, we'll go over it another time at length, but when you get to verse 14, it says this. I'm sorry, 13. If you look for me wholeheartedly, here's the truth, you will find me. If you look for me, if your desire is to find me, not to find a version of me that fits in your pocket, not to find the magic genie version, not to find somebody that, that makes it okay, uh, but if your desire is to find me and you search for me with your whole heart, says this, then and only then will I be found by you. This is discoverable when we do this together. Okay? Uh, I'm going to pray for you. Praise team is going to play. Uh, we're going to collect our morning's offering. I want to remind you, as the ushers come and prepare for that, that if you're visiting with us today, you are under no obligation to participate in our offering this morning. In fact, Malia mentioned it earlier, that little uh, tear-off card in your bulletin, um, if you want to fill that out and drop that in the offering plate, that is, uh, we, would, we would be... Um, thrilled to have that and would view that as, as your offering this morning, uh, but make sure you stop at the Welcome Center and grab a gift, our way of saying thanks uh, for worshiping with us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we come before you this morning and, and we just thank you for the truth that, that while you are so far above us and no one can fathom uh, the entirety of your character this side of heaven, um, that your word tells us that, that you are findable, that you're not hidden but that when we seek with you with our whole heart, that then we'll be found by you and, and that you've revealed yourself in certain ways. God, we thank you for the fact that you've revealed yourself through nature. And we thank you that you've revealed yourself through your word. And we thank you uh, most critically um, for revealing yourself in fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. God, and, and I pray that as we, as we go from here today that we will uh, just respond to him and that we will follow him, and that we will seek him more clearly, more passionately. Father, we, we thank you for this time. We ask you to bless this offering. Use it uh, to, to make inroads into the community. Use this offering to bring the gospel to people that need to know it, to bring light where there's darkness and hope where there's hopelessness and life where there's death. Father, we, we pray that not because blessed hope is great, but because you are great and you want to do powerful things in this community and around the world. And Father, we are thrilled to be a part of it. Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for all things. Amen.